in my family, we didn't have tons and tons of real specific ones, but we always did a reading from the book of Luke. I think Aaron mentioned a couple weeks ago that, that you know, they would always read from the book of Luke, the, the nativity story. And my brother Dave, who's my youngest brother, he's six years younger. And when he started reading, it was now his turn to be able to read from the book of Luke for us. And he, we would read from the King James, and he would get to that place where it would say, and Joseph went with his, supposed to be exposed wife, okay, his engaged his fiance, and Dave would say, and Joseph took his exposed wife. <laughs> so we always had kind of a naked Mary in our heads as we went through Christmas, and that was always Dave's rendition of it. But in a way, I think about Mary, and you know, her heart kind of was naked during that time. She really was exposed, in a sense. I loved what Randy said about the fact that having been to their little hometown, what a small little enclave that would have been, and how many people would have known. And I wonder if that's why Jesus comes down so hard on people judging. Because he probably knew what his mother had been through. Kids are cruel, playing soccer in the town square. Okay, maybe it wasn't soccer, I don't know. Kick the pig bladder. Whatever they were playing, you know. She was custom. She should have been stoned. Yeah, yeah. Right. And how she got out of it, what happened. So maybe she was Joseph's exposed wife. Maybe there's more truth in a six-year-old's reading of that passage than we think. You know, our whole point in all of this has been finding glimmers of Christ in our seasons and our customs and our celebrations. And the verse I really wanted to bring you all to as we think about why this Jesus was sent to the world is I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. I love that even in the Old Testament, God already has this plan. He's got his people that he's in covenant with and all the things he's going to do for them through Israel. But he always has provision for his other kids. And it is prophesied from the very, very beginning. So, you know, part of why we have this Savior who came for us is that he was going to be redeemed back to God to become a servant to all. Now, I'm going to go on and prepare you all. I'm going to drag you all over the word today quickly. Hope you don't mind. If you look at Mark 9:35, Jesus says to them, sitting down, Jesus called to the twelve and he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. I love how Chuck Colson talks about in his book, Born Again. If you're going to start a religious movement and you're going to, you know, couch it in trying to take over the world or whatever people's opinions are of Christianity, you typically don't start. I've never seen Tony Robbins on an infomercial go in. Lay down your heart, lay down your desires, lay down your life, and become last. That's how you're going to achieve success in the world. It's a very backward way to our human minds of trying to go in. And it's part of what Chuck Colson, with his attorney's mind, said, this is when I began to know there was something different about this. There was something that maybe these Christians had something because it was so counterintuitive to how we as humans would approach 
trying to make position and authority and success and all of these things. Philippians 2.6. We read, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, we talk about when Jesus was born, and we wonder about when he was born. We talked about most likely he probably was not born, December 25th. If that's shocking to any of you, I apologize, but probably not. Uh, There are lots of theories on when he may have been born, when he may have entered the world. Assuming that Mary experienced a nine-month pregnancy, which seems to me is probably very likely. Zachariah, her cousin's husband, cousin Elizabeth, was a priest and he served. And it says in Luke 1, verses 5 through 8, that he served during the course of Abijah, which probably means it was around the month of June. So Zachariah receives news that Elizabeth, who has been barren, is going to have a baby. And assuming she got pregnant right then, and then Mary comes to her a few months later, about three months pregnant, it looks like Jesus may have been born in September. Now I know there are other theologians who say April. I have a little pet thing about September though because it's the time of Rosh Hashanah. Do you remember when we talked about Rosh Hashanah? And how that's the Jewish New Year and how that's the time that you take a look at your heart and you examine your motives and you examine your inner life and you make a commitment to the Lord for that point forward. And it's also the time of the harvest. So I personally kind of like that September date. It doesn't matter to me if he was born in March or if he was born in hot July, whatever. But I kind of like that September date. And, you know, we like to think that Jesus was born 0 A.D., January 1st, 0 A.D. Doesn't that just kind of make everything line up beautifully? And yet we have such calendar issues. Are you all familiar with how we got our Gregorian calendar? It's quite a wild story. We start, you know, the Hebrews had one calendar. You should have seen me. I was studying Daniel for a period of time. And I don't know why I got so obsessed with this, but I was doing all the charts and all the numbering and trying to figure out, okay, so seven weeks of seven in the middle of the seven and the da-da-da-da-da. But I'm doing it all based on our modern calendar until it finally dawns on me Hebrew years weren't even 365 days long. So we originally started out in terms of a European calendar with the Julian calendar, which came from Roman times, which does not equate to the Hebrew calendar or Asian calendars or anything else. And then there was this guy, Pope Gregory XIII, and he, what the purpose was in trying to come up with a common calendar was so that Easter could be celebrated on the same day every year. But it was all based on the phases of the moon. Well, the Julian calendar got off pretty quick. And so pretty fast they were off the phases of the moon within four to five years, and then it just got worse. And that's why the Hebrew calendar will actually add a month. They'll go so many cycles, and then they'll add a month every now and then to kind of make up for that moon cycle. So Pope Gregory's like, you know what, we all got to celebrate Easter on the same day. This is ridiculous. We're starting over. I'm knocking the calendar back four days, and we're going to start afresh. Only four European countries initially adopted it. (laughs) Took more years for people to get caught up. That's why you've got George Washington's birthday over here, but actually it was this day, but then Abraham Lincoln here. But you know what I love about the fact that it's really hard to pinpoint exactly when Jesus was born and exactly when A.D. started and exactly when Abraham Lincoln was born? Because it makes me recognize again that our understanding of time and the passage of time, it's so cute. 
we think it's all about grids and charts and we really own it and we know. And this time last year, you know, that's gone. It's, it's like mist. There's no tangible way to go back. And there's no tangible way to go forward. This is all just kind of somebody's best stab at making something so conceptual a little bit more finite for us. And so I do think that the birth of Christ in terms of the initial event is just part of the mystery. Just part of the mystery. Now, there's something that we don't really understand because we don't come, for the most part, from Jewish backgrounds. But there's a very important celebration called the Pidyon Habin. Pidyon Habin. And it means the redemption of the firstborn. Now, where this concept of celebrating the Pidyon Habin comes from is in Exodus 13. And in the second verse, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether male or animal. I guess there were Israelite animals, based on what that says. And God said that firstborn of that womb, that male offspring of that womb, belongs to me. Now, since it belonged to God, if you wanted to redeem it back from God, there was a price for that. So down in verses 11 through 14, I went on and put it in your notes for you. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with the lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the days to come when your son asks, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord has brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Now the Lord also allowed them to redeem those firstborn sons back to themselves and they would pay a price. In modern Judaism, even if it's orthodox, this is a mitzvah, it's a celebration, it is a, rit a ritual, a rite, and it is called the Pidyon Habin. Now there are a couple of things that have to be satisfied for it to be a Pidyon Habin. And I should have included this very important word in it. The first male issue of the womb. The first male issue. And that means if you've had a daughter before you have a son, that son doesn't qualify. We're talking the very first baby that is birthed, and not by cesarean, that is, a, that is male. Only 10% of all births would fulfill this regulation, okay? So if, if a daughter was born first, you, you would never have You would a never have a pidyon habin. I do not have a pidyon habin. Never. never. Right. What does that make us? It's, we just don't have to redeem them back. <laughs> We don't have to redeem them back. And so how would they be redeemed? Well, and that's what we're going to talk about. And let me give you this little hiccup here. Not of the tribe of Aaron, the Cohen tribe, or of Levi. Those people were already belonged to the Lord for service. 
they could never be redeemed back. They belonged to God, period. And Didi asks a great question. How do you redeem them back? Well, part of what we see is guess who is a Pidyon Habim? Jesus is a Pidyon Habim. He is the first issue of Mary's womb. And he is male. So when they take him to the temple in Luke 2, and remember they were poor. And this is always interesting to me. You know, Jesus underwent in submission everything he was supposed to according to the law. He is circumcised on the eighth day. And then Mary and Joseph, if you look at 22 through 24, when the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And that was the sacrifice made if you were not monetarily blessed. So they pay the beggar's price to sacrifice and redeem him back from the Lord. You know, it's interesting to me that we have the Aaronic line who is completely dedicated to the Lord, those who came from Aaron, and then the Levitic tribe which is dedicated to the Lord. Because originally, all the priesthood was just going to come from Aaron. And what does Aaron do? The people get to griping because Moses has been on the mountain for so long. And Aaron says, well, I had to make this calf because they were all really ticked off at me. And they worshiped this calf. But the one tribe that did not participate in that was the Levitic tribe, the Levi tribe. Aaron also had issues with his sons. A couple of them just could not seem to get their collective act together. And so he brings two of his sons end up losing their lives just right off the bat in the service of the Lord. And so the Lord brings in the Levites as well. The Levites as well. Now Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, okay? So this was all part and parcel to some degree, but the priesthood had been specific to his that was going to be his legacy. And in a moment of weakness of caring more about what popular opinion was than the law of the Lord, he loses what would have been a solitary legacy. Now, God is so fair and so gracious, he ends up keeping it all within the same family line. But it does remind me of what God does for us as Gentiles. That his original intention, his people, Adam and Eve, and when that falls off the tracks, and when the Israelites get in the desert and start whining, and on and on and on, he begins to say, all right, I'm opening this up. (laughs) We're going to make this broader. We're going to have more people. Come on in. A picture of the Jews and the Gentiles. So Jesus undergoes the Pidyan Habin mitzvah himself. And when Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem to the temple, what they're doing is they are redeeming him back from the Lord. He grows. He begins his ministry. You know, there today in Orthodoxy, people still celebrate the Pidyan Habin with the first issue of the womb that is male. And I love this. They take the baby and they put him on a silver tray and the parents pay five silver coins. It's roughly 129 grams of silver uh, in, in U.S., okay? Between 100 to 129 in U.S. There are actually coins that are minted 
specifically for the Pidyon Habin ceremony if you want to order those, or you can just give five U.S. silver dollars. And when they present this baby on the tray to a Kohen, a member of the Aaronic priesthood, to redeem him back, the women often put their jewelry around him because it's in commemoration that the Levite women didn't give their jewelry to make the calf. They reserved their jewelry to become part of the temple. And this mitzvah takes place during a meal. They have a big banquet when they have the Pidyon Habin for the baby. They have a big banquet. So Jesus goes through the Pidyon Habin. And yet there is an interesting thing that happens. Because as our Pidyon Habin, we're going to look back in prophecy a bit to what Jesus does. If you go to Zechariah 11... Look at verse 10. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. If you'll track with me over to Matthew 26 and verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him, if I hand Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. Why? Why was there an exchange of money? When Judas receives this 129 grams of silver, it's about the same amount as the redemption requirement today for the Pidyon Habin. It's about five silver dollars. About five silver dollars. The significance of that amount of money at that time was that was the amount paid for a slave. In Exodus 21.32, if you were accidentally to kill somebody's slave, you would have to pay the owner 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you were trying to redeem an adult man who had been a freed man, it would be 50 pieces of silver. If you were a woman, it would be 30 pieces of silver. If you were under the age of 18, it would be 20 pieces of silver. There were all of these little requirements and, and things put in place as to what your price was. And so Jesus has been redeemed back from the Lord by his parents. But now he's being re redeemed back to the Lord, bought back to the Lord by the chief high priests of Israel for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. He is now laying down his freedom to walk back in and sacrifice. The blessings that are said over a baby at the Pidyon Habin Mitzvah are this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his mitzvah. That's the 613 commandments of the Torah. And instructed us regarding the redemption of the Son. 
And then the secondary blessing takes place both at the mitzvah of the Pidyon Habin, and then when this baby takes his first steps, when this baby speaks his first words. I want to put this on my refrigerator and speak it every time I see those milestones in my children's lives. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us alive, sustained us, and brought us to this season. I love this quote that John J. Perrin says about the fact that the chief priests pay 30 pieces of silver for Jesus, that they purchase him back as a slave. He says the irony is that those who appointed to redeem him as his koamnon, that's the Aaronic priesthood line, according to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, were the very ones who made him our redeemer. In other words, those who were appointed to represent Yeshua before God were the very ones who offered him up as a sacrifice for our sins. They didn't know what they were doing. They were completing the cycle of the Pidyon Habim. Now, the mitzvah of the Pidyon Habim generally takes place during a meal. And what gave me the chills was to think about in John 13, 27, that it's during a meal, it's during the Last Supper, that Jesus says to Judas, go do what you're going to do and do it quickly. Jesus is redeemed back during this meal with Judas's betrayal. You know, we often, because we're not Jewish, we sometimes lose context. Remember, Peter was called to the Jews. That was kind of his group. Paul thought he was going to get to be the one to minister to the Jews, and then Paul ends up going to the Gentiles. Peter, who was kind of this rough-and-tumble, successful fisherman who probably could speak the language and tell the dirty jokes a little better, he ends up going to the Jews. But that's part of the beauty of this one verse that I love in the book of 1 Peter 1.18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. They understand that symbolism of being redeemed back. They understand that to be redeemed back means a price must be paid. Now there's another Pidyon Habin, And that's Joseph. And we talk about Joseph oftentimes give us, gives us windows and prophecy into the life of Christ. To be sold by his brothers, to go into slavery, and to ultimately come into a place of supreme authority after all is said and done. Yet he's the first issue of Rachel's womb. And that's another thing about Pidyon Habin. It's not based on the father, which I think is really interesting when we talk about Mary. It's not based on how many children the father has. That's not it. It's based on the mother. And this is the first issue of her womb. Of her womb. And so even though Joseph has lots of older brothers, by a whole bevy of other women, um, it's that he is the first issue of Rachel's womb. And he is sold for silver. And to transition us into the next thing that I think is so fascinating, I want you to look at who buys Joseph. We're going to look at Genesis 37. Can you ask a question? Yes, ma'am. Uh, so are you saying that Joseph, oh, I assume he was the baby of the family, and he was the firstborn of... Of Rachel. Okay. He was the firstborn of Rachel, so and then Benjamin... Jewish 
religion, not the concubines or not. It was the any any of the firstborn of any of those other women, of Leah, oh, really? of Bilhah, and of uh, the the other concubine. All of them, all of the firstborn sons of Jacob's harem would have had to have been redeemed back to the Lord. Now again, this was pre-exile. Okay, this was pre-exodus. I don't know if they practiced pity on Habin at that time. But any time, I want you to remember, any time you're studying, when you see somebody that you know is the first male issue of his mother's womb, pay attention. Pay attention when you study. There's usually something very interesting about his life. There's usually something consecrated to the Lord about his life that is very interesting. If they didn't redeem them back, they had to Well, you know, this that is part of... That's what they were supposed to do with animals if they didn't redeem them back, if they didn't pay the redemption price. And it, it, this is a bit of a bunny trail, but, you know, we watch Moses, and he somehow, he's so busy ministering to the people, he forgets to circumcise his own sons. And his wife hits a place where she's like, this has to be done, or we are inviting disaster on ourselves here. You're going to be a bridegroom of blood to me if we don't take care of family matters here. So I don't know what the ultimate penalty would be. It's just, yeah, you just do it. You just do it. It's just part of what you do. Um, so when we look at Genesis 37, and we look at this Pidyan Habin, who is sold by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver because he, this means he was under the age of 18. So it gives us a marker on how old Joseph was at the time. They have a caravan of Ishmaelites come through, and they're riding camels. And those camels are loaded with spices and balm and myrrh. So funny. Sounds really familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds really familiar to me. You know, Jesus came to be a light to all who would seek him. We talk about the star of Bethlehem, and in Matthew 2, we know that it is the who, who see that light. It's who we call the Magi, the Magi. As we have established that so early on, God wanted to create a venue for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom. Isn't it fascinating that it is these men from the east who begin to recognize first the signs of who Jesus is? Now, part of what really captured me about the Magi, and this actually started back when I was doing all the teaching prep for the book of Esther. In one of those late night, playing in my Bible, Zodiades, um, looking at original Hebrew language, I discover that magi is actually an old Persian word. It's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's not Chaldean, it's not Aramaic, it's a Persian word. Now, Persia, it, in this time period, was Iran, parts of Iraq, there were times the Persian Empire was huge. There were times that it shrank. During the time of Esther with Ahasuerus, the kingdom of Persia literally extended from the borders of China all the way down to the borders of Egypt 
and Israel. I mean, they had it all, landmass beyond. And there was a religion that was practiced starting about 4 BC called Zoroastrianism. Now, what's interesting about Zoroastrianism is that it's a monotheistic faith. These Persians had figured out enough, there's got to be just like one supreme being. Not real clear on who that might be, and we don't have the advantage of these Jews knowing what all their covenant stuff looks like, but it seems like there's just got to be one supreme being. And part of where they developed this theology from was because the Magi, their wise men, their sages, this old Persian word, studied the heavens. They were astronomers. And the insight that they had from studying the stars was incredible. We are still using some of that information today in our modern understanding of astronomy. They would watch the stars, they would watch the movement of the planets. They did not have telescopes and they figured out very early on that there were at least five more planets surrounding us. They didn't seem to have the notion that we were the center of the universe and everything was rotating around us. They seemed to understand early on that the earth was rotating and moving around. Now again, this is back in the day, I mean this is even before the is the world flat thing came up. This is when you thought your neighborhood was the whole world, you know? And they were so much further ahead, just as we see in the Aztec and Mayan in the Latin American countries. They were so much further ahead in their understanding of the majesty and complexity of the universe. And understanding that brought them to the place of saying, there's probably just one supreme being. And so they practiced Zoroastrianism, which was an understanding of the mysteries of the universe. It was an understanding of the stars. It was an understanding of one supreme being. And the men who were priests, if you will, who were the leaders of that movement, were called the Magi. The Magi. Now there's a lot of speculation when we talk about the Magi seeing Jesus' star, this star that rises, and they're going to come see him. And some people say that, okay, this must have been during 6 BC, and so the star moves here, and it comes this way, and it stands over Bethlehem around December 19th, and then it shoots off, and that's what they were following. Okay. And then there also was an event, I think it was about 3 BC, where these six known planets that we understand did have an alignment that was pretty remarkable, and it created what is called Solomon's Cross, which is this type of star, okay? So, or this type of, not star, but apparition that you would see in the sky. And so this would place, if that was the event, this would place the birth of Christ, maybe 3 BC, maybe 4 BC, based on which calendar you're looking at. You know, what's interesting is the Bible never says that it was a natural event, okay? I'm very comfortable with the fact it could have been a supernatural event. I searched for, and it just got too late, but I, I geek out, and Mike and I actually have dates where we watch um, the Science Channel. And we recently saw a pretty phenomenal program that was not a Christian-based program, but on the development of supernovas, new stars, star nebulas, what they call star nurseries. And there is a primary star that I could not find the name for in my late night search, but there is one that it's light. You know, we, we get the light from stars. We're not seeing real-time light, okay? We're seeing light that has now moved through eons of space. 
And so there is a star that the light we're now receiving from that star lines up with about the time of Christ. And this is something that astronomers know. And it, even astronomers who aren't believers will say, well, if the biblical record is true that people came searching for Jesus based on, there may have been a supernova event, right, a star birth event that led them to start looking for him. And that light from that initial event is now still traveling to us. But one way or the other, we know that they saw something and that they were very learned. This was not just a, did you see the sparkler? That they studied and they knew they came looking for him. Now, that's right, the wisdom. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. And these Gentiles, these Gentiles, who knew nothing of the prophecies of old, who would seek him. And that's still the same blessing we're given today. All who would seek him will know him. Now, I, a lot of you know I um, write a daily blog, and on Sundays I have a little feature I call the Sunday Selah. And it's just writings of what the Lord has been teaching me. And last year, about this time, I wrote one that I did print out for you, but I'd like to read it to you. Because we can't talk about the Magi without talking about the gifts they bring. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. It was a strange baby shower, to say the least. Total strangers evading a jealous king, coming to a small home in a little hick town using a star as a GPS system. No baby shower games with these guys. No baby blue streamers and balloons, cartons of diapers, loads of layette. Just a declaration. A child to be born king of the Jews. They came as the most exalted minds of their culture, the sages, the brilliant ones. They entered his infant presence on bended knees and with voices full of praise. They knew what they had read in the astronomical auras. They came to worship. They came to verify. They came to find him. And they brought gifts. We have romanticized the treasures they brought him. We imagine these magi dressed in opulent silks, mysterious in their eastern garb. We sketch them holding beautiful treasure chests, ancient forms of gift bags. We imagine a ransom of gold and spices pouring from their giving hands. But these were actually very controversial, provocative, prophetic items. In bringing this infant gold, the magi were recognizing him as a king. And in so doing, they may have paid for the travel expenses realized the next day when Joseph is told in a dream to escape with Mary and Jesus to Egypt to avoid the murderous clutches of a paranoid King Herod. In showering the infant Christ with gold, they covered him in the very material covering the Ark of the Covenant, the container of the law. They provided him with the precious metal which adorned the vestments of the Levitic priests. Their gift of gold recognized him as priest and king. Frankincense was the only incense allowed to be used alongside the altar in the Holy of Holies. Imagine the Magi lying beside this small baby, the human and divine representation of the altar, the one fragrance allowed to perfume the very presence of God. Imagine the scent wafting up toward his mother, her wonder at the richness of the aroma. But it is the last gift that is a stunning, a favor faux pas. They bring this little child, they present to his mother the equivalent of a bottle of formaldehyde. They come to the baby shower with the materials needed for a successful funeral. 
because myrrh in the ancient world was used for preparation of the body for burial, a resin that could perfume and preserve the grave. It was valuable. Yes, it was prized, but it was hardly a sweet endowment. Myrrh's very name means bitter. It's not something a young mother would want to put on the baby register. And yet in their shocking final gift, we see the prophecy.